Hello, welcome to a very special episode of what was it? Hopping testimony? <laughs> mad testimony. Uh, mad, <laughs> mad, mad testimony. testimony. It is a <laughs> hybrid show tonight. Uh, Irreverent testimony. Uh, myself, Travis, and Rachel. Hi. And we have Arliss Bunny and Will McLeod from Hopping. I'm Hopping Mad uh, here to join Hi. us from their podcast. And uh, we're going to talk about some stuff. Glad to be here. So, uh, yeah, we, we mainly wanted to reach out to you guys because uh, you are the resident experts on uh, economic stuff. And uh, there's been some uh, things in the news about tariffs. And a lot of people are talking about tariffs. And what does it mean that Donald Trump today has uh, officially, well, he is, uh, whether it becomes official or not, he has imposed or wants to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. Yes. Rachel, you want to maybe explain that a little better than the way I've just fumbled through it? I do. So, um, you know, it's kind of crazy, and Arliss is going to get into some of the economic questions of what this actually means. Um, and Will's going to talk about some of the, the reaction from the global community, but just as like a background on what happened. During the campaign, Donald Trump talked a lot about protectionism, which is the idea that we need to protect American manufacturing and American um, uh, produced things, and including the trade balance. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he bitched about, you know, oh, China's doing this thing with money and then, you know, other countries are taking our jobs and taking our um, economic development by us not imposing tariffs on these like raw materials. And that the trade imbalance is costing <coughs> American jobs. Right. Is what he claimed. Right. So I don't know why we keep being surprised that he keeps trying to do the things that he said he was going to try to do, but we keep being surprised. <laughs> um, so the Department of Commerce uh, sent some recommendations to the White House about, uh, about his campaign promise to tax imported steel. Um, and it it included a call for a 7.7% tariff on aluminum and a 24% tariff on steel. Um, they called on him to claim that imposing these tariffs were in the interest of national security and saying that he could implement them using a provision from a 1962 trade law. Hmm. People didn't like that. Um, corporate America in particular didn't like that. A lobbying group named Business Roundtable um, claimed that the national security justification was quite a stretch, uh, and we were worried about a trade war. There was also a headline, I think it was the New York Times, or maybe it was the Post, that said, um, Trump announces tra Trump is unglued and announces trade war. Right, right. right. There was that. Too. So, so, anyway, Thursday... As if it was a temper tantrum. Right. That's what it seemed like. Right. So Thursday, he's yeah. at this roundtable and he's talking to business leaders. And and after it's over, somebody he's talking about these tariffs and, and a couple of reporters started asking him questions as they're being ushered out of the room. And he seems to sort of pull out of thin air um, the numbers. And he says he wants a 10 percent tax on all aluminum imports tariff uh, and a 20 percent tariff, 25 percent, 25 percent tariff on steel. And apparently the White House uh, melted down. 
they were like, what is he talking about? And like, this has not been cleared with the Treasury Department. This no, that's has not a been recurring cleared. theme with him, too. Yeah, with yeah. anybody. He just made this up out of nowhere. Now we've got to figure out no, what I'm gonna to do. I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Didn't vet it. Didn't prepare it. No. Didn't get studies on it. Just I'm gonna, on a whim. Here we go. Oh, I think 25 sounds good and 10. Yeah, they, yeah. Think, they, huh. think, they think he pulled the numbers out of his ass, basically. I mean, I think it does come from the report that he got from the Commerce Department. Vaguely. Vaguely. But, you know, <laughs> those they, numbers they, are none of those were vetted either. I mean, it's not like anybody knew this was happening. So, right. <clears throat> Wait a second. Do you really think he read a report from the Commerce Department? No. No. Really? I think someone read it to him. And he may have remembered a number he that was somewhat close to 10 and, and somewhat, somewhat close to 25, mm-hmm. which are nice round-ish numbers. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably why he yeah. would with those. That's probably economically sound, right, Arliss? Just round numbers. I, I think over, you know, over a drink and ice cream up in the residence with – you know, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who comes to the Commerce Department from the steel industry. Surprise, mm. surprise. They, mm. you know, had a drink and, you know, Ross said, hey, can you give this to my friends? And Trump said, sure, I can do that. Right. But and he was- to be fair, Trump has a long, long history of protectionist trade rhetoric. He does. Oh, yeah. yeah. He does. Going, going way back. And actually... Ross was the first one to come out and defend him and say, "No, we're definitely doing this." Yeah, look he at this wasn't fucking around and yeah. and yeah, let's we're we're doing this. And there's yeah. not going to be any country exemptions, he said. So, the stock market uh doesn't do great that day. Um or the next day. <clears throat> or the next day. Um so I'm going to let I'm going to reserve comment about what other countries had to say for Will. Um so he, he starts retaliating. He starts responding to some of these countries, though, right? That are saying, like, if you do that, we're going to do this. Like, it's a literal trade war. And he starts tweeting, like, yeah. trade wars are great and, <laughs> and easy to win. And easy to win. Um, quote Our jobs and wealth are being given to other countries that have taken advantage of us for years. They laugh at what fools our leaders have been. No more! Exclamation mark. I call bullshit, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, Secretary Ross came out and said the president's not going to change his mind. He's announced that this was going to happen this week. This was on Saturday. I have no reason to think otherwise. Um, White House trade advisor Peter Navarro came out on Saturday and said there will be no country exclusions. Um, so that's kind of the basic time. And then. Today, about noonish Eastern Standard Time, uh, he signed this this thing. Um, yeah. What, what, before we get into that, let, let's back up and maybe have Arliss explain to the listeners what uh, some of this basic stuff means. Yeah. Would you mind, Arliss? Okay. Like, tariffs and yeah. That, so. Yeah. Let me talk a little bit more about the domestic news scene and then i'll get what this really means and and we need to get and actually even before i do that it might make some sense for will to hop in and talk about what's going on internationally because that'll make what i say make more sense but okay um first of all i i have to say there will be, ready for that. yeah there'll be zero jobs added this is going to be like the tax cut the trump tax cut right. there will be zero jobs added and here's why if you are a giant steel company in order to tool up 
to increase your capacity, you have to do two things. You either have to add physical equipment and capacity, facility, that sort of thing. Um, and you have to train, you have to hire and train staff. In order to do those things, you have to believe that this thing is going to be around for a decade, right? Yeah. Because your upfront investment in, in adding all of that is enormous. So American steel and aluminum companies they aren't going to add jobs. They aren't going to add capacity. What they're going to do is, if you're a steel company, your competitors' prices just went up 25%. So you take your prices and you go up, oh, say, 22%. And now you're making more money for the same exact amount of product. And what are you doing with that money? Are you paying your workers more? Are you making your plants safer? Are you no. no? You are using that money. You're giving that money to your shareholders and to your executives as as um, bonuses. You know, you're you're husbanding that money and and um, and using that money in basically the worst possible way because you can because they've made this possible. This is a giveaway to the people at the top of these companies. Nothing more. And there's something written so in the thing that he signed that said, you know, as a requirement of these tariffs for American steel and aluminum companies, you must pay your workers a certain percentage more or you must hire more people. There's no requirements on these companies whatsoever, from what I understand. Right. None. And uh, on top of it all, of course, um, things like foreign cars are about to get considerably cheaper than American cars. So the amount of American steel going into American cars, if the production of American cars goes down, you know, so then we lose jobs are more likely to be lost than gained. That's right. If jobs yeah. are more likely to be lost than gained. And the it's <laughs> the, from an MMT perspective, I guess, from a modern monetary theory perspective. Modern monetary theory isn't necessarily pro or con on on um, tariffs, but the but the objective. What MMT says is that there has to be an objective. If you're going to set a tariff, you have to have a point, right? And it has to be you know achievable, and you have to have a plan, and you have to have a way to get from A to B. Trump has none of that. No, right? He's just saying I'm going to do this thing, but he isn't. Just as you said, there's nothing written into this that pluses up American jobs. If you really wanted to drive American steel and aluminum, you would put in every DOD contract from here on out a Buy American clause. Right. Yeah. The DOD exactly. consumes 3% of all steel. In the world? So, uh, yes, I think that's right. Wow. So, just put Buy American in you know, in the contract, and that's how it's going to be. Well, so, and if I could point out, like that was mentioned by the Brits tonight when they were having their question time show on the BBC. They said, you know, uh, this is a this is a foolish thing to do. Um, it was the uh, the foreign secretary of the UK. Um, that his name leaves me right now. He says because we sell a ton of really high quality steel to the U.S. defense industry, so banning steel and taxing steel under national security reasons is crazy. And he said he was going to go to Washington and have a conversation about it. Um, <laughs> okay. And while we're quoting uh, with, with, he's going to be in Washington meeting, I, I think 
with uh with somebody in the federal government. I'm not sure, but uh, um, uh, doorman. I, the doorman. Let me, probably. One, let me say one more quick thing. Yeah. And this feeds into what I know you're about. But Trump views steel and aluminum as if they are standalone industries instead of part of massive supply chains. Right. He doesn't right. see them as part of a web. He sees them as this standalone bubble. And you're about to tell us all the ways in which that's not true. But what that means in a sense is that not only will we probably have a net loss of jobs, <clears throat> but additionally, all kinds of things are going to be more expensive for your average American. Right. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's oh, all that with the web. Here's, here's my favorite quote of the day. I have to, I have to get to this because this is just you're, you're going to find this priceless. This was a tweet by a guy named Jeffrey K. Walker and quote, Charles Koch just wrote this in a WAPO opinion piece against Trump's tariffs. When large corporations can pressure politicians everyday Americans to fork over unearned millions, we should all question the fairness of the system. <laughs> Charles Koch said that, huh? Coming from Charles I blew cornflakes oh, out my nose. Oh my God, that's, that's beautiful. He's just upset that, he didn't get in the in the steel business, I guess, at this point. I know, He's it's priceless. It's chemicals. just priceless. Wow. Okay, so- No one but the, but the Kochs are allowed to do this. That's right. right. It's, it's me and my brother. Other and nobody else. You're we are the only in my ones. Territory, Ross. <laughs> and by the way, when we do it, it's not, it's not, it's not Coke Industries. It's just me and my brother who have money. It's not a corporation. No. Right, yeah. um, okay, so Will, because um, I want to talk about ahead. what the GOP back home has done, but I think it's important to get to how the hell did everybody else react? Because this is a tariff means we're going to be charging other countries this percentage tax essentially um, on their import of those raw materials, right? So this is a this is a global problem. And how did how did the world do? Okay. Well, I'm just going to read a quote from Donald Tusk, the uh, president of the. Um, European Council, basically the closest thing the European Union has to a president, who said that the uh, President Trump said trade wars are good and easy to win, but the truth is that trade wars are bad and easy to lose. EU's goal is to keep the world trade alive and, if necessary, to protect European by proportionate responses. European trade by and an economy by proportionate responses, he meant. Um, and he said this while wearing a don't fuck with me t-shirt? Yeah, pretty much. He said this on <laughs> Twitter, and it, well, and it was coming out of a of a statement. These are quotes from a statement he made with uh, the T shock of Ireland, Leo Varadkar, um, earlier, and and he was talking both to the UK and and did mention the US in, in passing. Um, the the thing is, the European Union doesn't fuck around. And I and I feel like people don't realize the depths to which the European Union does not fuck around. Look what they did to Greece during the euro crisis. They don't play games. They say and do what they mean and they don't budge. Well, I mean, isn't I mean that better because, and different. Isn't that sort of 
the whole point of the European Union existing was it ah. makes sense to me that they don't fuck around because the entire point of them existing was to have open borders and free trade and a common currency so that things like this were not an issue between countries that are so closely proximated. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly why this happens. And here's the thing. The European Union is a nascent superpower. Yeah. They aren't totally united yet. They're moving closer together. And actually, with with Brexit happening, the biggest uh, intransigent nation that stood in the way of all of the various ways the EU wanted to come together and work together and kept like throwing a wrench in the works uh, is not going to be there anymore. Right. The UK, uh, right? They wanted uh, to keep the pound. They yeah. didn't want the euro. Yeah. They've got all these restrictions. And yeah, I remember. There's... There's a TV show called Yes Minister, which is hilariously accurate on on certain levels. And what Yes Minister said as a joke, but that really seems to be true, is that uh, the Home Office and the British Civil Service is pro-Europe because they're really anti-Europe. <laughs> because they've had uh, the same foreign policy as it relates to Europe for the past thousand years, which is to prevent a single power from dominating the continent and thus threatening the uh, England or the United Kingdom. Um, And so in order to achieve that, they had to join the European Union because they couldn't muck it up from the outside. So they had to join it to muck it up from within (laughs) so that they could turn the French against the Germans, the Germans against the Dutch, the Dutch against the Norwegians, and just make a whole pig's breakfast of the entire thing. This is, you know, a joke, but it is kind of how the UK operated within the EU. Every time the EU came up with an idea like having a common defense force system so that there would be a common command that nations could opt out of in certain situations, but that would allow them to respond instantly to something like Bosnia if it happened Mm -hmm. and have the full force of European militaries come down on a genocide on their border and just stop it immediately. The same way the United States would would do if Canada fell apart and there was suddenly a genocide in Ottawa. Mm. Like, Uh, Let me ask you this, Will. So assuming we get to this trade war, how does Brexit figure into this and in, in the EU? Um, well, that's that's kind of what that's exactly what I was about to say is uh, if you look at what they're doing to the UK, they've they've manufactured a position uh, where the UK basically holds no cards and has to fold. Hmm. What they're doing as it relates to the trade war is they are targeting um, I don't remember which one of you mentioned this before the show, but it's really interesting. They're targeting the specific industries from specific states of specific vulnerable senators. Mm-hmm. Uh, bourbon <laughs> is one of the things they're targeting. Soy is one of the things that they're targeting. And they're just picking out uh, various things that matter to Trump's base and to the senators in the, in the U.S. Congress. And they're just targeting those industries. Darren when, for Ryan in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're and they're increasing that and they're not screwing around when when Tusk said that they were going to take whatever steps they needed to to protect European interests. What he actually meant is that they were going on the attack and we're targeting your politicians. Right. Good. And they they 
I mean, bad, bad for and, us, <laughs> but good for yeah. them. Yeah. So, but the way they work is they they speak softly and then run you over with a tank. Yeah. That's how the EU does. And that's how they're responding to this is they're picking out very, very strategic places to strike. And then they're just going full strength and strike it. Well, I sure and the, I, I Japanese sure. are basically saying for the Japanese, they're basically saying works for me because they're the the comparative price of their cars is going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. Because because, again, steel exists in a web. So you have Japanese cars that are going to be cheaper. Um, you have uh, more steel on the international market for less expense. So that means every manufacturer that, that uses steel, it's no longer going to the U.S. and the Defense Department to get it for less expense. Um, so so that's going to affect uh, European car manufacturers as well, because steel that was going to the U.S. is now sitting around in Europe and greater supply means lower prices. So it's going to lessen the, the expense for everybody else. Um, and then if you think about the massive web of production and all, all the products that are made from steel and all various um, uses for a basic industrial commodity, cutting ourselves off from supply is a terrible idea, which is why almost all U.S. businesses are screaming at the top of their lungs about how terrible this is. Well, well fortunately, Trump, Trump's base doesn't. Fortunately, Trump's base doesn't drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Not good beer, anyway. Well, look, uh, assuredly, Ryan and McConnell understand this. Um, That's it, what I was going to get to: is Senate Republicans and House Republicans and their response to this. And that's interesting about the EU uh, targeting some of these people. Right. What were you going to say, Trev? Well, I was just going to say uh, if Ryan or McConnell were to bring any bill to the floor, they'd probably have enough votes to do something to stop this or slow it down. The question is, will they? Well, they can actually nullify this. I I would I would bet that they won't because well, they're a Republican Congress. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you is they're talking about it. They're not happy at all, um, in part because I think they understand that this is terrible economically, even though I don't know that they really understand economics. Um, and maybe it's in part because of some of these um, retaliation from the EU. But yeah, these are things you might see right away. That's another thing, too. Right. So Jeff Flake, who is, you know, no fan of Trump. So this is not a huge shocker. Said, quote, if it's anything approximating what he's talking about, introducing legislation to nullify it. I'm assuming I'm not going to be the only one doing that. Nobody knows what it is yet, so we can't do anything until we know what it is, right? Because he hasn't signed it yet. Uh, Bob Corker said, I could, yeah, in response to supporting Flake's nullification legislation. Orrin Hatch, who generally backs Trump, um, said, quote, I think there's a good chance that we will nullify the tariffs. Huh. Uh, in a rare show of discontent with Trump, Hatch described himself as, quote, very upset <laughs> Quote, I'm disappointed because we just passed a tax bill and this kind of flies in the face of that. Um, no, it kind of goes along with it. But Mitch McConnell and Paul yeah. Ryan both issued <laughs> statements expressing concern with his decision. Trump. Um, oh, express, Ryan expressing concern. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that. Right. Neither of them mentioned the process. Thoughts and prayers. Exactly. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. This could kill our economy, but shrug. Um so there's a lot of pushback, it seems. Uh, 
John Thune of South Dakota. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me say, let me jump in and say why this might actually happen from Congress right away. The tax bill is one thing, and we're going to be debating this probably up until November. And the results of the tax bill are going to take a little bit longer to feel. Uh, some people might have seen the difference in their paycheck very minimally here and there. Um, but the, the whatever are, you know, maybe slight good for all the bad, that's still going to take a while to shake out before people really realize what that's all about. But you could see, if I'm understanding this correctly, guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it, you could see this, the effects of this happen much, much sooner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no. Companies are concerned about the next quarter. And right. if this kind of thing concerns them for the next quarter, I mean, they can always hire more peons. That's how companies they Companies use – America use inventory. They're not holding big supplies of inventory, big back supplies of inventory. Yeah. They're relying upon a daily resupply, and that relies upon a consistent, solid supply chain. And that supply chain is going to keep working, but it's going to cost more. Yeah. Right away. So, and so that that creates immediate things. The fact that these these are signed means there's already going to be an immediate effect from these tariffs because there's already the the, the response is already being slotted into position now. Mm-hmm. So now there's, what we, the thing we haven't said is that Mexico and Canada have been left out of this for now. They have been temporarily exempted yes. because NAFTA is still under negotiation and somebody finally to get him to, to set Mexico and Canada aside. But the, the, on the other hand, the Chinese response has been really interesting. Will, do you have information on that? No, I hadn't gotten to that in the research yet. So if, you, if you've got that information, please. Well, that's it's not surprising you haven't gotten there because it's basically been this very quiet, very even handed response. And basically, the Chinese have said a trade war isn't good for anyone. We'll wait and see how this plays out. That is that is typical Chinese reaction. The yes. Chinese think in very, very, very long term things. So their reaction to Trump is your temporary our president will be here when you're dead. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how they think of things. If I could take well, us back to the Republicans. Their president's just, going to be there for life. So I think Xi is certainly thinking in very, very long term. Yeah. Uh, if I could bring us back to the Republicans real quick. Yeah, I've got like, like you guys five mentioned, more statements on, from like really yeah. interesting Republicans that like. But the thing is, their, their statement. Uh, uh, an old phrase in my family is if at first you don't succeed, lie like a Republican. And <laughs> so I don't trust statements from Republicans. How many times in the past in, in, in the under Trump have the Republicans tut tutted about something that Trump has done? I mean, like, well, this is just a terrible thing and I don't support it. And then done fuck all about it. Right. I but don't I know. Do Rachel, who else you got? I got I think this is different because of the immediate economic impact mm-hmm. and because of the targeting of vulnerable senators. I've got Ben Sass from Nebraska. Quote, this is a really stupid policy. It's going to hurt American consumers and it's going to hurt American workers. If the administration goes through with this policy, it will kill American jobs and lots of them. I've got yep. Mike Lee from Utah. 
who last year introduced a bill that would require congressional review of tariffs. He says, quote, I will work with my colleagues to use Congress's Article I power to make sure these tax hikes are never enforced. I got Chuck Grassley. Quote, maybe we've delegated too much authority to the presidency. I'm <laughs> not just saying to Trump, of course, right? Uh, Grassley. Uh, quote, could be this, the power to slap national security-related tariffs, quote, could be abused by other presidents, past and future. I mean, he's such a fucking ass kisser. <laughs> And maybe we'd better take a look at the trade laws, right? Well, he was speaking in future tense and then mentioned past presidents because he's a genius. Yeah. Uh, Pat Roberts from Kansas has urged Trump to reconsider the tariffs. Quote, I don't think our trade policy ought to be used as a playing card. Um, Quote, on this issue. And see, here's what's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. What's Pat Roberts concerned about? Agriculture. He's worried about all that corn and soy that's laying all over that's laying down all over Kansas. Right. Exactly. And he's and he's he's about his his growers are about to lose their market. Yeah. So that's, that's right. why that's why I think this is different. I because agree these you. guys can campaign contributors are ringing their phones. Mm-hmm. Not just their voters, right? People who put right. money in their coffers. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. and I don't matter. The, Not nearly as know. much. That phone call doesn't go through. Theirs does. But you're yeah. still you're still going to be asking Republicans to take a rational act. And I'm not sure. But they're, it's not personally. about it being rational. It's about it being self-serving. And in this case, profitable. it's self-serving and profitable for them to back their contributors in their own states rather than this crazy thing, which the rational thing is it's bad for the economy and it's bad for America and it's bad for international relations. I don't think they care about that. They care about exactly what Arliss said, which is... These people donate money to them and they're giant, you know, forces within their state economies and they're pissed. And imagine, imagine the meltdown and the tantrum if Republicans deep six his tariffs. Yeah, that that's, <laughs> you know, okay, that's, that's like, ooh, that makes me feel good thinking about that. Me like too. that's, that's, that's some good stuff. But that's, also that's this past year. This past year has made me so fucking cynical that I, I do not trust that Republicans would ever do the right thing under Trump, even if it actually suits their interests. Because, you know, I, I don't think they operate under rational self-interest right now. Maybe not. Yeah, I think there's some room for reasonable doubt on this. Like, I do. I, I, I hope you guys are right. I, I'm going to drop my opposition to this in the conversation because we've already said what we need to say. But I hope you guys are right. But I'm still I'll believe it when I see it. I know. And I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And I hope I will be. Me too. And, you know, like literally, I don't I don't believe anything until I see it anymore post November 8th of 2016. So I have no idea. I just think it's possible in this one specific instance that they might find the willpower to do the right thing not for the right reasons but i could t- be totally couched wrong. in that language i agree couched <laughs> in all of that language 100 agreement here yeah yeah <laughs> plenty of i mean exactly how many republican senators do you think got phone calls today from lockheed and boeing uh all, all of them all of them all of them yeah yeah every yeah. single one of them i mean they only have to flip 16 to do this well, and I, every democrat will vote for it so i think no 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 they won't 
Should we get into that, or does it even matter? Which Democrats are no, not no, going to go there. his tariffs? Yeah, some of them are, are all about it. Who? A couple of yeah. them. Who? I think Manchin, uh, was it Heitkamp was one of them? The usual suspects. Um, and then I forget who, but there were a few that were actually. But that doesn't matter. Um, out of curiosity, out of curiosity, where's Bernie on this? Oh, fuck. You know, that's a good question. <laughs> The last I said, the last thing I heard from Bernie was we shouldn't be talking about Stormy Daniels, so whatever. Um, but that's a really yeah. Good he's question. he's all he's entirely focused. Yeah, that is a good question. He's entirely focused this week on the on the bank lobbyist act, which he and be. he's been like a laser on that. Which is which. There's logic there. So yeah, that's important. That's I mean, important. You know. Yeah. No, I'm just I'm not I'm not saying that because I want to like get you get a gotcha on Bernie. I'm just actually interested in what his position would be. On something as stupid as this. Right. Because, you know, there's, if, yeah, there's a possibility that he's like, yeah, it's great. Well, he's a little he's a protectionist. Let, a let's too. let's talk about this. Right. There's that guy from the AFL-CIO who has been all over the airwaves and he sounds like a character from a Coen Brothers movie. And he's more or less all about this when you get pressed on like, well, why should this apply to Canada and Mexico? He's like, well, it, it shouldn't. But I love the idea of tariffs because China is dumping all this steel in the markets and it really hurts us. Like, is there a place for some sort of tariff in a more thought out, rational manner? Um, China is number 11 in steel suppliers to us. Number 11. If you really if you really want to, you know, stamp on somebody, you stamp on somebody like Germany. But, you know. It's not like Germans are dumping steel. And the thing that nobody has paid any attention to, or certainly the AFL-CIO has not freaking paid attention to, is that there is already legislation against Chinese steel for because of dumping. That was passed under Obama because mm-hmm. and, and, Obama was ticked about that. And what has happened in the meantime is that China wanted to get into the um, IMF's currency basket. And it involved, in order to do that, for a period of time, they had to allow their currency to float freely. They could not manipulate their currency. And they had to continue that since they got into the into the basket. Right. So for them, that is a long-term goal. They have been shooting for that for 20 years. Yeah. For them to be in the basket, they're not going to screw with that. So they are not going to manipulate their currency in favor of their steel exports. That's not happening anymore. Right. Trump read that it was happening. I know Trump was yelling about that 30 years ago. But in terms of them dumping steel, this guy claiming they're still doing it, they're not still doing it, is what you're saying. Right. Or we're not policing it well enough or. I'm just I'm just trying to play, put on the devil's advocate hat for a second so I know where, you know, people who might support this are coming from. Because there's going to be some people on the left. It changed who are three years ago. This, right. It's it changed about three. I think it's three years ago when um, when Obama got when Obama put his restrictions on Chinese steel through he he talked to the Chinese. He negotiated with them. He did the best he could. And then he put. Um, not tariffs, but additional, essentially, sanctions in place that affected Chinese steel. Okay. And they have been abiding with that because they want our, you know, they want to be in our market. Right. So and- 
the the problem that we had with China really they're selling their steel in other places. That's why they're 11 on our list of steel suppliers. Brazil is ahead of China. Yeah, I also heard that mentioned somewhere. I think on NPR. And yeah, and you know thing. how all that Brazilian steel's been killing us. You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> yeah, right, right. Look, if you wanted, if you really wanted to put a tariff on something. And you wanted to do it in a way that everybody would agree with, except for probably the Republicans. And you wanted to do it in a way that you could avoid significant consequences. The easiest way to do that is a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. You tax the carbon that, that it takes to produce a product and you tax the carbon it takes to transport the product. And you do that for certain imports and certain sectors. And what that means is that stuff that has been shipped across the Pacific in these massive ships that burn a kind of fuel oil that is so low grade and so filthy you can walk across it at room temperature. Uh, I mean, that kind of carbon tax achieves the same kind of effect that a tariff would on restricting the supply of some foreign good without necessarily triggering the same response that a, tr- that a tariff would or, or causing a trade war. What that it, causes is for people to upgrade the quality of the transportation, et cetera, in other words, yeah. to raise their environmental standards. So you've done a temporary thing that improves your own local economy by restricting supply where you're oversupplied and done a long-term good thing for the planet. And that's how you do something like this without triggering all the consequences. But in order to do that, you'd have to admit that climate change was real. Oh, yeah. Well, come on. Let's, <laughs> let's <laughs> oh, not be we're silly. Doing that. Jesus. Yeah. So the Roosevelt Institute has a sustainable, equitable trade doctrine. And that's absolutely worth everybody taking a look at. I won't go I won't drill down into it here because it's incredibly granular. But it deals with exactly the kinds of things Will is talking about in terms of thinking about trade in a much bigger picture as part of um, sort of the web of life, <laughs> you know, instead of seeing it as a, um, you know, as a chimney, basically. Well, I have a question. So I guess, you know, I'm a millennial, <laughs> but I grew up in an an age and era where globalization is um, not something that my generation thinks about because it's a given, right? We're so connected via social media and the internet and and trade and all. It just seems like um, that there's a, a perhaps a generational difference in how we look at some of these things. Because for me, looking at tariffs and things like that, like I understand where they may have been helpful or useful for prior economies that function differently. But now it just seems protectionism in general to me just seems so outdated and, and so useless and, and ultimately sort of self-defeating because of the globalized way that we live. Yeah. So can someone explain to me why a tariff would be a good idea or what, what, I don't know. I, I just, this is where I'm coming from. And I just, I'm sort of at a loss with this announcement. Like, oh, we're just going to, ta- it's like, wait, what? Like, that just seems so like 1940s or something. I don't know. Can I, Arliss, can I take a crack at this real quick? Because there's one issue that I want to point out about this. 
Sure. And then you can tell me why I'm wrong if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> because you know more about this stuff than I do. So I think the best example of this actually goes back to this whole Solyndra thing. You remember the Solyndra conspiracy theory yeah. and all that? Oh, the, the solar company? Um, yeah. So what happened was the Chinese decided that they wanted to corner the market on solar panels when the United States had a nascent solar panel industry. And we were, you know, creating subsidies and trying to help out all of our solar industry. And this is a, a an oversimplification of the situation. And yeah. basically, the Chinese started to sell panels at or below cost with the support of their government. Right. And, um, and used currency manipulation and other things to get there. And the result of that was that it killed a bunch of U.S. solar producers, including Solyndra. Which then became this big bugbear for the Republicans to, to talk about because yeah, they cared we more about being able to. And it's a waste and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah they, they wanted to hit Obama with it rather than look at the fact that the Chinese issued, you know, entered into an economic attack on our country. Right. And in that kind of circumstance where the Chinese are trying to kill off a new industry in the United States that we want to invest in, that we want to support, tariffs are appropriate in that kind of circumstance. It's also appropriate if you look at Canada for Canadians to institute very strict dairy import tariffs because they want to protect a certain kind and level of industry as a lifestyle for Canadian dairy farmers. And they're willing to spend more on dairy so that their dairy farmers can enjoy a certain level of comfort and everything else. And it's an economic extravagance, but it's done for reasons other than the economy. So the two reasons you might have some kind of protectionist thing in place is either because your industry just is not going to be able to compete otherwise, and you've decided for cultural reasons that you want to keep it alive, like the Canadians with their dairy industry, or but see, to me that doesn't make good sense, but that's fine. I mean, or because of well, it's it's a cultural thing. Canadians want to have a dairy industry. They've decided that they're going to do it, and that's fine for them. That's okay. that's their sovereign decision. Um, or in, in as the long case as they're of, willing to pay more money for right. it, yes. it's, it's not a compelling uh, argument to me. But I'm not Canadian, to make, so yeah. I, yeah. yeah, and they're they're going to they're and they do spend more money on milk. Milk is much more expensive in Canada as a result of that. And how does that help um, people in Canada that are poor? I mean, how does that affect? You know, they have a social safety net. Yeah. That takes care of it. Yeah. Right. They have they have a welfare system and, and all this other stuff that takes care of that problem Some so that poor people can still afford the milk. OK, F- fair. Yeah. Of course they do, because they're like you know, civilized. they're going to. Yeah, they so, that consequence. So, but the other time that's appropriate is if the Chinese are messing around and actually messing around with something like solar panels and you need to defend your country from an economic attack. Um, then some kind of sanction or tariff is appropriate at that stage. Uh, that makes because sense to me, but my, my other question, and thank you for that, I think that... And, and Arliss, am I wrong about that, or is that... No, you're not wrong, but you missed a really big one. Okay, would you, would you point that out? Okay, so the other one is that if you're the United States, you are never going to buy a Chinese jet fighter. You have to protect your American right. military jet industry, mm-hmm. which means that you have to protect all the components of that as well. The avionics suppliers that, you know, everything that goes into that fighter, you have to be able to build here. Same thing with tanks, same thing with ships, same thing, you know, all of it. Well, right. You have to be able up. to do that 
locally. Let, let's let's look and at that, that angle. That for a is what. That's what the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 was uh, written to support. Well, I'm glad you brought that and up. And Trump is misusing it. Because Max Boot wrote this article today about how this tariff idea would actually be really bad for national security. And I only read a little bit of it, but I think that's where he was going with this. So, uh, Arliss, what is your angle on that if this went into place and actually happened? How would that p- potentially affect national security? Okay, so there are – it used to be that the defense industry was um, extremely large and extremely diverse. Now it is extremely powerful but not very diverse. There are really just a handful of companies left because, you know, everybody's bought everybody. Right. And if you lose the ability to produce something as highly specialized – as avionics, as military-grade avionics, then (laughs) that's not something you can just, you know, buy from the British. The British can build it, but they're going to build it. um, Oh, how do I say this? They're going to build it to conform to their specifications. Uh They can build to American specs, but only if they want to, only if they feel like it. And whereas American manufacturers have to build to the specs of the DOD. Right. They have to build to the specs of their customer. And is there also an additional concern there that they can build – anybody could probably build it to our specs, but they then have those specs. They then have them, and that is bad for national security, Right. For a very, very long time, um, for I think it was three generations of fighters, the Russians didn't have looked the Soviets didn't have look down, shoot down radar. Okay. We did. They didn't. Right. That was an enormous benefit. Wasn't remember there? The, a, uh... Remember the Norden bomb site in World War Two? Yeah. No. You know, that was an enormous technical advantage. Yeah. So those kinds of things. Those can be the difference between, you know, winning and losing a war. You have to keep that stuff at home. You just do. Okay. So that's what that is what Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 was written around. In other words, it was written to make sure that, you know, um, Boeing's division in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico would still be building avionics no matter what. Right. And the the reality is that Trump has dredged this up, this Section 232, for only the third time in history since 1962. And um, it's ridiculous. And the Defense Department and the um, defense industry hasn't been shy in saying so because it's screwing them. Because if they get rid of this, then there's potential future threats that the presidency won't have the capability to deal with. Well, and not only that, but there there are components and um, and some uh, raw materials that they do bring in from overseas. They don't have to, but they do. For instance, there are things we make for the British and there are things they make for us. There are things we make for the EU and there are things they make for us. Yeah. So this, if this tariff goes through, is it just going to mean that our military spending goes up? Because we're not going to farm this out, right? 
So we just spend right. more money on the military for no reason. And with yes, no caveat cut. that we have to buy American. We're, we're going to import it, pay more, and then military spending goes up. And it doesn't actually affect American jobs because there's no requirement that they have to buy from American companies. Thank so it's you. all a giant That's circle exactly. jerk, right? I mean, there's no That's right. point. <laughs> Jesus. Well, and, and here's the bottom line, and here's the thing that that is – that I, I, you know, everybody in the modern monetary theory camp wishes we could, you know, wipe the slate clean of neoliberals and make this what I'm about to say clear. There are two kinds of basically wealth in the world. There's real wealth. That's the real economy. That's goods and services. So for me personally, that would be carrots and veterinarians, <laughs> goods and services. Right. But the other kind of wealth is is um, what's called nominal wealth, and that is various forms of money, whether it's um, credits that pass electronically between bank accounts or you know actual physical cash. It's you know or a check, whatever it is. It's nominal wealth. Well, nominal wealth, no matter what, no matter how you view it, because we and all our allies and almost everybody has a fiat currency. Mm-hmm. Nominal wealth is an IOU for an IOU, right? If you take Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you take a physical dollar to the um, Fed, you know, if you could do this, you could take a physical dollar into the Fed to, um, you know, to redeem your IOU and they give you a physical dollar (laughs) because that's what it's, you know, it's a fiat currency. It's only worth itself. It's just, it's a, yeah, it's some a, people it's think about that and they freak out and they want to get back on the gold standard. Yeah, because they don't understand the power of that, and that's another whole conversation. But <laughs> in this in this um, conversation, what I'm saying is that we have a trade, what they call a trade deficit. But really, what that means is we are bringing in more goods and services. Then we are sending out. So we have additional assets here in the United States than what we're sending out in terms of the real economy, carrots and veterinarians. Mm -hmm. And what we're sending out are pixels, IOUs for IOUs. Hmm. We're getting the better end of that deal. We're getting stuff. Hmm. We're getting we're getting carrots and veterinarians. They're getting pixels. Well, then it gets a little more complicated because the value of those pixels, even though it's a fiat currency, is based off of the U.S. dollar being sort of the world standard currency, right? Well, actually, there's a basket of currencies. You know, there are. It's the um, it's the dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro. It's uh, you know. It's the it's the IMF's currency basket mm-hmm. that I was talking about earlier, okay. and all of the members of the basket, of you know, and that's a very very select group, and you have to work damn hard to get into the basket. But all of the members of the basket have influential currencies, and they float against one another. Hmm. Regardless, it's still pixels for pixels. Right. And we've still got more stuff 
we, you know, he who dies with the most stuff wins. This is actually when that's true. Hmm. And so we're fighting this, this thing that's been drilled into all of us since we, you know, first could understand anything about economics that tells us that, you know, debt is bad and that deficits are bad when in reality we're talking about something that is nominal, something that is ethereal. And what really matters to all of us is what's real, what we can really you know, what we really have in our lives, the food, the shelter, the, you know, the doctor services, those kinds of things. Those are the things that matter. And so when it comes to that, and Arliss, correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I understand it, the value of a currency isn't really based on the amount of a currency that exists. It's based on what you can buy with that currency, with its purchasing power. And that is influenced by exactly one thing, right? It used to be that people, People thought for a brief period of time, people thought that, um, well, not for necessarily a brief period of time, but there was a period of time, and this still bleeds into neoliberal thought every day, that that the quantity of money out there matters. But we absolutely know it doesn't. It's proven a thousand ways from Sunday that it doesn't. And one of the ways you know that is that there's been no inflation since, you know, the 70s, basically. And there's, a, you know, a, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars more out there in the market and yet no inflation. If you and, want to see a chart that, is, that illustrates this, go look at the M0 chart for the past 50 years. You'll see this massive skyrocket in the money supply in 2009 with quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. And the value of the currency has not significantly dropped. Well, they were even though we've that, yeah. Yeah, there were fears of that, but we've created trillions upon – it's trillions with a T, right? Or less trillions oh, of new dollars. Yeah. Trillions and, upon trillions of new dollars have been have been uh, pixelated into existence, and it had no And you've effect. never seen us not be able to afford a war, have you? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. We can always find the money yeah. Yeah. to do so, what we want to do. Because we just pixel – I mean we just click that into existence at the Fed with the keyboard. That's, you know, and that creates that and it transfers the money to, you know, to whatever vendor is building the whatever thing. And, you know, and the, you know, the bomb goes off to Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, fill in the blank. And the the thing that people worry about, and this can be legitimate, it's just not. It can be, is that if you are bringing in more then um, if you have a trade deficit, what they call a trade deficit, then that will also represent a drop in unemployment. Right. It's what's called an aggregate demand leakage. And that then that will also drive down wages. But there's actually no proof that that happens. Now, it's, it is absolutely true that when NAFTA came in place, some people lost their jobs. Yeah. But A... Other people gained jobs. And not only that, at the same time that NAFTA happened, the next year the U.S. entered into the World Trade Organization and the China shock happened at that same time. China entered, you know, and the China shock dwarfs any Mexico bump, I guess you would call it. And on top of all that, massive technological advances came along at the, you know, started coming along at that same time. Yeah, exactly. So it it is 
it is impossible to know, and there is no proof that that a trade agreement has ever actually cost us, you know, significant jobs. But this is really interesting because um, this is a quote from a couple of quotes actually from Warren Mosler, and he said, "We went from needing 99% of the people working to grow our food to less than 1%." Mm-hmm. And manufacturing jobs are down to only 7% of the labor force. And yet the remaining 90% of us are not all unemployed as jobs have proliferated in the service sector where most of those jobs are now considered to be better jobs than the lost agricultural and manufacturing jobs. And he also said, nor has the trade deficit necessarily resulted in higher unemployment or lower pay. For instance, in 1999, we had record uh, imports with unemployment under 4% and inflation under 2%, and students were being recruited for good-paying jobs well before graduation. And what he's saying there... (laughs) You know, I know. Nice. Imagine, imagine <laughs> the concept. Yeah. And what he's seeing there is that the people are laying the blame for what's going on in the economy at the feet of debt and the trade deficit. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where neoliberals are laying the blame. But austerity is how we got here. Right. Right. And, and if the- we were spent. Go ahead. Oh, just to the point of of um, of unemployment and and all the things, it's the same sort of. The other argument there is like, I don't want to still have to read by candlelight. Um, I like light bulbs, even though I might put a bunch of candle makers out of business, right? Like, yeah. When we have innovation, like industries change and employment changes, and what employment looks like changes. That does not mean that, like, I should still be reading by candlelight and not have a car or a television because, gosh, that might put some people out of work. It's about changing what un- what employment looks like rather yeah. than... and just wait till 3D printing really gets going. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is the job, the um, forfeited, shirked, ignored job of domestic fiscal policymakers to take the is necessary to drive employment. And so that includes things like a counter cyclical, I always stumble over that word, <laughs> a counter cyclical job guarantee program. And a, a job guarantee so program, a JG like? program. Okay, so it's set at, boy, there's another whole long show. Okay. But basically, <laughs> it is it is a guaranteed wage of $15 an hour with a job for anybody who wants one. And the federal government supplies that and provides that in a number of different ways. And I know you think I'm saying something insane, but actually yeah. this is all worked out in great detail by other people. And... Um, uh, it is, it is entirely doable, entirely affordable, and the. Um, I mean, just think about the amount right now. The number of people who who either are so unemployed that they've fallen out of the employment unemployment numbers, or are underemployed. Yeah. Think of all that lost productivity. Right. 
What if they all had $15 an hour jobs? And as an employer, I'm telling you that A, that's not a problem for me because I'm paying my people, mm-hmm. but also B, what I really want is for everybody else to have to pay their people as well as I pay my people so other people can afford to buy my product domestically. Exactly right. Because that would be fabulous. Right. My dad used to always tell me like, oh, Democrats are terrible, liberals are terrible because back in the Depression, they used to pay people to dig holes and fill them back in. And I always thought like, why is that bad? <laughs> like maybe it's a useless task to fill a hole and fill it, or dig a hole and fill it back in, but you just created a job for somebody who didn't have one and an income for them so that they can help grow the economy. Like that always made sense to me. And I, and I know that that's an exaggeration of what that program did, but even, even if, if I could you just say it the that works, way, I was like, I'm fine with that. Let's have the government we, pay people to do shit like that. I'm fine with that. Well, we have trails in national parks because of that. We have roads because of that. We have rural electrification because of that. They weren't digging holes and filling them back in. They were digging holes and putting in an electric pole right. and then taking an electric line out to a rural town, didn't have electricity and making sure electricity got there. No, I we know. have a massive I, need I, I, for infrastructure not, investment. That's the jobs right there. But that's I know. not it imagine just what we crazy. could do. Even if imagine what we could just... do for inner city schools. Just imagine, stop and think what we could do for inner city schools. Yeah. I mean, even if it is just support staff for teachers who are already there. Yeah, that still makes it so that you have reduced the numbers of uh, the teacher-student ratio to like 10 kids per teacher or teacher's assistant. Mm -hmm. And repair of facilities and all kinds of, I mean, just... I mean, it doesn't it's not hard for us to imagine what we could do with the giant workforce of people who I I mean, there are a ton of people out there who want good jobs. We have the power to give it to them and we are not doing that. The next thing on the list is student debt. You get rid of student debt. And guess what? Those millennials can afford to hmm, buy homes, buy cars, buy, so you know, and all those terms. things have we'll to stop be killing. We'll, we'll stop killing diamonds. We'll stop eating avocado toast. <laughs> we'll buy houses. We'll stop killing department stores. We'll stop the murder spree. I promise. <laughs> Take away my student. We're not going to stop, stop killing golf. Though. Mass murdering everything that you care about. So to, to sort no, of sorry, we're not going to stop killing the golf. As a millennial, I have to say yeah. golf <laughs> is not negotiable. Golf dies. Yeah, I'm with golf you. Golf dies. <laughs> And diamonds. Yep, I'm, I'm with diamonds. you right there with diamonds, golf, diamonds. diamonds and golf. NAM radio. But anyway, yeah, well. to, to wrap this all up, uh, to try to sort of get back to the tariffs, wh- where do we think this is going? Where? where... Well, here, I'm, I, I, need, I need a couple more minutes because I yeah. need to tell you some things you don't know about trade. Okay. So That's a lot. In January, of, in January of 2017, the last month of the Obama administration, we had a trade surplus with Mexico of $7.59 million. You know, for that month, for the month of January, there was an overall $60 million deficit, $60 deficit in that year. But January was positive, as were some other months. In January of 2018, the trade deficit with Mexico was a historically large $4.408 million, biggest ever under Trump. So he's driven that, hmm, why are Mexicans not wanting to buy American products? Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. What could it possibly be? But I think... The, my point here is that we are – when NAFTA went into place, our trade deficit 
with Mexico has grown to about an annual $60 billion a year. But guess what? Our trade with Mexico, our export to Mexico has increased by $193 billion a year, three times what that deficit is. So let's talk about that for a minute. Just break that because we're talking a lot of like heavy economics. And I know that your listeners are super used to it and ours are super not. But that makes sense to me as a principle. Like, does the deficit matter more than the amount that we're trading? I mean, if we're exporting three times as much, who gives a shit if the deficit is more? Everything is more. That still means that we're at a net gain, right? Rachel gets the gold star. Um, And I should point out, by the way, just as a side but side point, because we were talking about avocado toast earlier, our <laughs> avocado imports are up 60.8% this year with Mexico. See? Um, and that is the avocado toast effect. That's but, because we don't want to buy houses. Um, we want to eat avocado toast, obviously. Avocado it's, toast, yes. That's yeah. That's right. That's, yeah. But it here's what here's what matters. The U.S. manufacturing sector is growing again. And there's this myth, even in the MMT community, and it makes me crazy because um, most of the leadership in the MMT community, I don't know another one of them that is a manufacturer. And as a manufacturer, I feel like I'm, you know, alone in a field somewhere shouting (laughs) this. But um, it's like, please, uh, it's hard enough to be, you know, in the MMT community to be alone on one of these points is really frustrating. But There's this myth that the U.S. doesn't make things anymore. And guess what? There are more Americans working in manufacturing now than ever before. I'll repeat that because people don't know this. There are more people working in manufacturing in the United States now than ever before. Not as a proportion of our population. That's what I was going to ask. Is it a percentage? but But just more of them. But we have more people too, yeah. right? But it's yeah. a good point. I mean, it's a, it's a fair thing to say. Yeah. And it so does it matter? Does it does it matter that the percentage has changed? No. And since the, this is something from the National Economic Council, and they say um, since the Great Re- Recession, manufacturing has grown at nearly twice the pace of the economy overall, making the longest period where manufacturing has outpaced the U.S. economic output in 50 years. Okay, so here's where we got to talk about the thing that I can't stop talking about. Fucking That's the messaging. Obama economy, by the way. No, yeah. messaging. We, as a party, are goddamn terrible at it, and I'm getting very weary of being really bad at it. Okay, the things that you've just said, who have we told that to? Nobody. I don't know. I've been screaming it for months, but yeah. No, no. The DNC, who have they said that to? Have you heard that? Nobody. Nobody. Sunday shows or talk shows or op-eds or campaigns? Okay. What the are they saying, though? Hold on. Who've heard this Hold are on. the what listeners are of Hopping Mad and the other shows do it What are they saying? On all of the Sunday They're- talk shows, on all of the shows, right? Manufacturing has been killed by Democrats. We want to bring manufacturing back. It's no longer going to be a dying industry on our watch, right? But what right. they're doing is taking credit for something we've already done. And all we're doing is not fucking telling anyone. Yeah. And right. that is the failure of our party and that is the failure of our movement. 
is we don't take credit for things we've done and we don't say what we've done because we just assume people will know and they're not going to know if we don't tell them. So all of the things that you just said, I'm not hearing that anywhere. I didn't even know that. And I'm a good Democrat and I'm a progressive and I didn't know any of that because nobody bothered to tell me and I'm one of the more politically focused people that I know. So how do I expect my brother who works full time and has a house and a kid and maybe doesn't watch news and you know he's got to work out and all the things, how do I expect him to know that actually manufacturing is doing pretty good and Trump's bullshit tariffs are not going to do anything except kill jobs? Who's going to say that out loud? Where's the DNC? Exactly. Where, what, are, what are we doing? What, we can have the best ideas so, and the best people, but if we don't tell anybody what we're doing, what's the point? Exactly. So let me just give you one more thing to shout about to bend your mind, okay. because we use all these numbers that are nonsensical, like, you know, how big is the trade deficit? That's a nonsensical number. Who the hell cares? Right. Right. But here's another nonsensical number, but it puts something into perspective for you. We import 96 cents per person per year of uh, Mexican goods into the U.S., 96 cents. Okay. They import a dollar 94 of American goods per person per year into Mexico. So who gives a fuck Why do we about always the talk trade about deficit? It? Who cares? Exactly. Why do we talk about it as if it's a raw number? We're a bigger country than Mexico. Of course we import more than we than they do. We're bigger. But they're importing uh, more per capita. I mean, that's that's insane. Right. That's, but that's what I'm not, saying. We and, are not fighting back with that message. We're not. We're just allowing them to have the narrative that trade deficits are bad and that debt is bad and that spending is bad. And none of those things are true. But we're allowing them to have that narrative because we're like, shrug, what do we do? And you're like, I don't know. Say the thing Arliss just said out loud five times. I don't. Uh, that's all. Just say it out loud. Right? Can I say and, something that pisses me off? Yeah. Trade deficits are good. Trade deficits are a good thing because you know what's happening? We are exchanging real goods and services for paper or pixels. Right. To Arliss's point earlier. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting yeah. We're getting real shit for pixels. It's a great thing because then those pixels go into bank accounts and into workers' pockets and they buy real stuff with those very same pixels. It's a great system. There's something to be said, and this actually is my last my last uh, point, and this is why Will and I work together so well. Um, he, fed, he exactly fed me what I needed for my last point, which is that there is something to be said for building customers. We have built, NAFTA has built a middle class in Mexico, for instance, that did not exist yeah. prior to NAFTA, and they are buying our goods in increasing quantities. This is enormously important for American markets. And so there is something to be said for building markets around the world because that's where our our products have to go. We are not feeding into the bottom of economies. We are feeding into the top of economies. We need economies to be developed and sophisticated in order to be to you know make any sense for them to purchase our goods. It's also the exact you know if you're getting having a living wage in the United States. If you pay right. people enough money to be able to purchase your goods, they're going to do it, and you'll make more money than if you pay them less. If you make, right. if you pay people enough money to make a living wage, then they will buy more things. 
If you pay rich people more money, they're not going to buy more things. They have all the things. If you pay poor people more money, it floods the economy with income and it, it, they, they buy goods and services. It's exactly the same argument. And well, trade agreements I'd do not have bit, to be. I'd just go a little bit further than that, Rachel, and say, you know, the, the Minsky point that uh, someone made on our, our, our show uh, a while ago is if you are addressing the minimum wage, you should address the real minimum wage, which is zero dollars. Yes. So maybe a universal basic income. Yep. Hells yeah. I mean, it would well, literally drastically improve the economy and nobody wants to talk about it because it's like, yeah. oh, it's so terrible. We just pay people for nothing. And it's like, yeah. no, you pay people to buy goods and services. If you really were like a fiscal conservative, like it makes monetary sense for businesses to have people have money. Yeah. Well, it's what I was saying earlier. You know, I want everybody else to have to pay their employees more because I will sell more product if they're paying paying their employees more. Right. It's plain and simple. That's just yes. it's just Correct. that's just the way it is. But here's the here's probably the last thing that that I really need to say, and that is, companies make decisions based on profits, but governments are in the position of making decisions based on values, yeah. and we can. We can shape trade agreements around our values. Trade agreements do not have to be about ISDS courts. They do not have to be just about um, patents and intellectual property. They can actually be inclusive of labor and small business. They can regulate against things like tax evasion and monopolies and currency manipulation. And um, they can impose safe labor practices. They can impose strong climate or not impose, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Incentivize. Uh, they can incentivize uh, strong climate and environmental provisions. We can dream bigger and we can dream better in trade agreements. And it is to our shame that we have not. And the reason for that, and I'm going to scream it again and again, is because we have let the other side control the narrative. And the narrative is regulations, red tape, mm -hmm. bad. Mm. What you're saying is the opposite of that. And you're 1,000 million percent correct. We, uh, it's our duty as a, as a government, as a civil society to shape policy around our values. But we've let them own the narrative of regulations are bad, red tape, it kills industry, it kills jobs. None of that's true, but it doesn't matter because nobody on our side is saying anything different. That's right. Yeah, in fact, we're going along with that too We're often. like, yeah, but we like clean air. No, no, no. Don't give them the message and then capitulate to it with an and but. No. You know, Obama no. had some of that. Obama had, had some of that message. It's not there. true. What you're saying is fundamentally untrue, and here's the truth, and we aren't saying that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I keep getting on the soapbox, but it's so irritating because it's – we're right. No, nope, you're know right. don't to say it out loud. Yeah. We've been no, exactly not right. saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that gets into a little bit of the uh, banking bill, but I don't know that we have time to really delve into that. We've been talking for a while here, so uh, we'll talk about that on our episode. I'm sure it'll be discussed uh, much, much length on the next Hopping Mad. Any closing thoughts, <laughs> everybody? Well, I just – I think – the more we say to everybody we know that real goods and services, getting real goods and services and giving away pixels is a good deal, that we win. 
and you know explaining that to the, you know the uh, the best of our ability you know we just you just have to that's you know that's as Rachel's talking about that's, right, that's messaging message, we just have right? to keep saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it yeah Everybody else has said wonderful things about trade. I just want to return to international stuff for a second and watch the EU. The EU is a nascent superpower that is just starting to come into its own. And there is a day coming for some future president. It's not going to be Trump. It's probably not going to be anybody who immediately follows Trump. It's probably not going to be for for 10 or 15 years yet. But there will be some incident somewhere in the world and the u.s decides it wants to do something and the eu with its massive military force and all of these airfields that we rely on to get around the world tells us no and tells us we're not going to do something and ends up constraining a u.s action of some kind in exactly the same way we did to the brits and french uh, over the suez crisis that day's coming for us. And watch the EU because they are not fucking around here. And I think that we need to start considering uh, as Americans that with the end of the Cold War, people aren't buying the kind of line we're selling anymore. We have to cooperate with the rest of the world now. We can't just be the biggest bully on the block. It's not going to keep working. Well, I think that's about to be China's job. I, I would just say that to to Will's point, it goes back to one of my earlier points, which is I think, Will, you, you're in my generation. are Yeah. It's, it's just so obvious, right? Like, it just is the way <laughs> yes. it is. It's just the way it is. And it's so weird when, like, these – this 70 year old maniac comes out and says like, Oh, we're just going to do all this crazy. And we're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> what? Like these, these motherfuckers insane. are still acting like the cold wars happening. Yes. And, and, and interestingly, we're going to get into this a little bit on our podcast later this week. Some of those things have been coming around lately with Cuba and Russia. And we're going to talk about some international relations stuff. That's going to be pretty interesting, but I just think generationally for us, um, it, it's, globalization is just such a given that when we hear protectionist language and we hear isolationist language, it's, it's foreign. It just seems so preposterous. Right. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's the way it should be. And it's the way everybody should just get on fucking board. We're not stopping this train, right? We're not going to yeah. become unglobalized because we don't like Brown people. It's just not going to happen. So everybody should just get over it and realize that, we are a world economy and we are all connected and that's, that's not going to change. Right. Which is why the 70 year olds and the, um, uh, those who are, who have a lot of job insecurity are so damn afraid. Yeah, I know. And our party wants to help them, you know. but we don't tell them that. So they don't know. So, you know, that's messaging. right. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Well, this has been a very lively roundtable. Uh, I learned a lot, Me too. which is great. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, our, the, the economics thing, we have ideas, but the facts and figures and theories are not our strong suit. <laughs> um, so uh, really glad that we could all get together. Really appreciate your time, guys. Uh, let's do it again sometime for sure. Yeah, soon. 
soon. Let's, yes. let's do this pretty regularly. This is fun. Yeah. I like being able to swear. I like being on a show <laughs> that is not broadcast terrestrially, so I don't have to worry about getting somebody in trouble with the FCC. Yeah, I like it like, too. I, I do really badly. I really have to watch my shit when I'm on somebody else's <laughs> show that is broadcast that way, and I don't always succeed. So you're welcome here anytime you want. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been uh, – are we still going to call it? Mad Testimony. Name? Mad Testimony. Mad Testimony. Yes. <laughs> Collaboration of Will and Arliss from Hopping Mad and me and Trav from uh, A Reverend Testimony. All right. Thank you, everybody. Will is, I should say, Will is on Twitter at uh, WillMcLeod99. I'm on Twitter at Arliss Bunny. And our website is I'mHoppingMad.com. And uh, you know where to find us. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talk to everybody soon. Adios. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Many carrots. <laughs>